Hello and welcome to Act Your Age, a podcast where two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. My name is Tasia. And I'm Corinne. And today we are talking about The Raven Boys by Maggie Stiefvater. But before we get into the book, Corinne, what are you obsessing about this week? So I feel like this obsession of mine is actually a couple weeks old, but we haven't been here together in a couple of weeks. And like it's been ages since we've done this. It really does. <laughs> I Happy feel New- very out of practice. Yeah. I agree. Happy New Year, everyone, first of all. <laughs> uh, this is an obsession that took hold of me a couple of weeks ago, but I cannot stop thinking about it. So it's a true obsession in that regard. And it is the show called Crash Landing on You. It's currently streaming on Netflix. It is a K-drama from South Korea. And it is, I'm just going to say like the most romantic thing I've ever watched in my entire life. It is a kind of silly plot, although apparently based on a somewhat true story about this wealthy woman from South Korea who accidentally paraglides into North Korea and is saved by a very dishy captain in the North Korean army. And of course, in his efforts to protect her, um, they start to have some very nice feelings for each other. But there are just wonderful side characters and side plots in this. It's 16, like hour and a half episodes. So it's kind of long, uh, but it was just wonderful. It touched my heart in a lot of ways. I had to pause the finale like five times because I was crying so much. I could not read the subtitles because it's in <laughs> Korean. <laughs> it was bad news bears. So I can't stop thinking about it. I have since that time watched yet a whole another entire k-drama with the guy who is the star of crash landing on you i've started a third one now i'm like all in on this this world this like untapped world of k-dramas that i've never been into before but this one i think was really special and i'm gonna be hard pressed to find one that was as good as it and i made you start uh, watching it yeah you did so that's also part of my current obsessions i'm literally only on episode two and i'm already all in on this. Yeah, like you you said, it's great side characters. There's just so much going on and there's so much to root for. And yeah, it's it's really good. Yeah. And if you just like love romances, it has every trope like known to man. Yeah. We got some fake dating. We've got some there's only uh, one bed situation. Just like everything that you could want, it's got it in there for you. And it kind of knows that it's self-aware of the fact that it is this it dramatic television. Yeah. yeah. So it's really cleverly done. Um, so everyone, please watch it and then email me about it. Talk to me about <laughs> it. Uh, I need more people to talk with you about it. So thank you for watching it with me, Tisha. I appreciate that. <laughs> I love nothing more than to drag you into various trash cans with me. <laughs> I'm happy to dive in all the time. (laughs) Great. Um, Uh, But what else are you into? I was, you know, as one does frantically um, catching up on their uh, Goodreads Mm -hmm. list. And so I read over the last couple of weeks, I read A A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor by Hank Green, which is number two in the Carl series. I think it's two out of two. So there's not going to be a third one, but they are very good. I am not typically a huge fan of science fiction, but these ones are really good. Hank Green is a scientist and a teacher, and he makes it all very accessible. It's very like millennial ennui meets sci-fi fantasy, and it's like cultural commentary, like social commentary. So, and it's really funny. Hank Green is is a funny dude. If you've ever watched his TikToks, you should go uh, <laughs> ponder his pelican obsession with me because I don't oh, get it, but it's fun. All right. Sure. We all have our things. 
Yeah. I and never then, read those books that I, everyone talks about them and I really do feel like I need to read them. They're really good. They're really good. The first book is all from one, the main character's POV. And for being a ostensibly straight white dude, he writes a bisexual millennial girl very, very well. Like her voice is very distinct and very strong and it feels very accurate. Yeah, that's not a skill money. Yeah, that white men have so right. Cool. Um, and then what other what other thing did you read? I also read Station Eleven, which mm. I did not know what it was about before I started. Oh. It. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just heard that it was good, and then I find out like on page one that it is about a global pandemic that has mm. wiped out most of the planet's yeah. uh, population, and it's just sort of this very dystopian, like post apocalyptic type of book. Um, so maybe not the the wisest choice right now, just depending on your own yeah. um, frame of mind. But I actually found it really nice and sort of like oddly comforting. And I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, that's good. I have avoided it for that reason. I own it. My husband read it at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And he felt similar to you that he found it like kind of nice to have something else to look at to be like, okay, well, at least it's not this. Right. It's not uh, that bad. <laughs> right. So I, it's on my list. It's here. But the number of unread books I have on my shelf is is quite staggering. So we'll see when I get to Same. it. But everyone says it's good. So it is we'll get it's very there. good. So this is the beginning of, as we said in our last episode, a very big project for us and the thing that we are very much looking forward to in starting this podcast in the first place. We are very, very big fans of this series. I owe my discovery of this series to Tasia. It's actually probably how we became friends, I would say, in terms of you saying just shouting at everyone to read that's <laughs> all <laughs> then I'm very I'm very pushy about recommending these books to people hey I appreciate it so much because I I immediately fell in love with these books I read them at such a fast pace I think about them all the time Just constantly so, yeah we're not like very chill raven cycle fans so we <laughs> apologize in advance for this um because we really did you talk about these books like I would say like once a week, probably it's at least. Yeah. Yeah. So we think about them all the time. Uh, So we're really excited to dive deeper into them. And before we get to that, I think we did want to make a little disclaimer that while in some of the other series that we've covered, we've tried to limit spoilers for the entire series to a spoiler section at the end of the episode. But we felt that with this series, it was really impossible to do so because one of the gifts of these of this particular series on reread is all of the foreshadowing that is peppered in to the writing. And we felt that we could not arbitrarily draw a line and try to separate out non-spoiler versus spoiler, just also because in a lot of ways, these are very character-driven books. It's impossible to kind of talk about where the characters are in this first book without getting into where they're going in terms of right. this four book series. So that's your warning right now that if you've not finished this series yet, and if you've not read some of the stuff that comes after this series, including the first book in the Ronin trilogy called on the Hawk, the bonus materials, Opal, the short story. And um, what's the name of the Declan short story? There's a Declan a short very, story. 
a very Declan Christmas. Aw, cute. Uh, so if you haven't read any of those things, we will probably bring them up. Maybe we won't, but uh, I just, just a, a fair warning. We, we are not holding back on anything when it comes to the Raven cycle on yeah, this we, podcast. We really don't feel like there's any way to address the overarching themes or the character arcs or anything, anything within this series really without going into the spoilers. So right. So, right. So this is your warning. Sorry. We have tried to be really cognizant of that in the past, but that's uh, our podcast and we do what we want. And this is what we want to do for this one. So uh, turn back now and finish the series. If you haven't, we'll be here waiting for you in your podcast queue whenever you do finish. Uh, but for now, I'll start off as we always do with a book summary. I will admit that I stole approximately half of this from the back of the book because my creative <laughs> juices after two weeks of holidays are not flowing to what they should be. Uh, so <laughs> I am uh, citing my sources. For as long as she can remember, Blue Sergeant has been warned that if she were to kiss her true love, he will die. Each year on St. Mark's Eve, she stands next to her clairvoyant mother as the soon-to-be-dead walk past, but as a non-seer, she cannot see them until this year when a boy speaks to her. His name is Gansey, and he's a rich student in Aglenby, the local private school. Blue has a policy of staying away from Aglenby boys, also known as Raven boys, because they can only mean trouble. But Blue is drawn to Gansey, who is on a quest to find the dead Welsh king, Owen Glendower, a sleeping king who will grant a wish to whoever wakes him. Gansey's quest for Glendower has led him to Henrietta, Virginia, where the novel takes place, and he has corralled three other Raven boys into his search. Adam, the scholarship student who resents the privilege around him, Ronan, the fierce soul whose emotions range from anger to despair, and Noah, the taciturn watcher who notices many things but says very little. After fate causes her to cross paths with Gansey again after St. Mark's Eve, Blue joins the boys as they search for ley lines, pathways of spiritual energy that surround Henrietta and which Gansey believes will lead them to Glendower. In searching for the ley lines, the gang finds a magical forest called Caveswater in which time seems to stop and in which the trees speak Latin. The gang also learns of a ritual that can be done to awaken the ley lines, and they are convinced that doing so will help them find Glendower. However, before they are able to do so, they learn that their friend Noah is actually a ghost, and that he was murdered by his own friend seven years prior, intended as a sacrifice as part of the ritual to awaken the ley line. The murderer, the boy's Latin teacher, Barrington Welk. The gang races to stop Welk from attempting the ritual again, and Adam ends up sacrificing his own free will to Cave's water, agreeing to be the forest's hands and eyes. This awakens the ley lines in Henrietta. The novel ends with the gang preparing to continue their quest for Glendower over the summer, and with the revelation that Ronan can take objects from his dreams. A lot happens in this first book, we were talking about the whole book today. And when we kind of outlined this, we were like, oh, yeah, this book is a lot of setup. So we don't need to take two episodes to talk about it. We don't need to divide it in half. And uh, there's a lot to talk about. A lot does happen. There's so much. Our notes are so long. I think longer yeah. than our notes have ever been for any episode. Yeah, they are. I think a lot of it, too, is that this novel, the series, and as we talked about before in our previous episode about Maggie C. Vodder's Scorpio Races, it, a lot of what is so rewarding about her writing is her prose. We're both really big fans of it. She says a lot about her characters through really just great sentences that pack a punch and really cut to the core of who these characters are. So I think I have just a lot of like, 
pulling quotes and I was like, yes, this yeah. is exactly who Gansey is. Yes, this is exactly who Adam is. She's got a really great style and use of imagery. Her her work is really immersive and extremely atmospheric and it's just transporting. Yeah. So it's hard to not write down a lot, just a bunch of quotes. Right. And what I think is really interesting about this series too, and kind of fits within the themes of what we like to talk about on this podcast is that while this is a story about a bunch of, they start off as juniors in high school and the ends when they're seniors in high school. While this is a book about teenagers, it is probably the most adult young adults series I've ever read in terms of the level of difficulty, I would almost say with the prose, the mm-hmm. level of of nuance and layering to the prose. There's so much here to kind of dive into and give a lot of critical analysis to. And it it, it really is such a good example of young adult books and why they should not be discounted just because they are about teenagers. It's kind of staggering actually. I'm like this is this is hard. There's a lot here to to sink your teeth into. Yes. Yeah, it just really kind of solidifies that YA isn't a genre so much as it is just a word to describe the age range of the main protagonists. Right. And this is just a perfect example of that because this is in no way juvenile reading. No. Yeah. I mean, we've got like big, heavy themes too that we're mm-hmm. talking about here. And so I guess that's kind of where we'll we'll dive in here today because we love a theme and we love to discuss things by themes that I think much like we did with the Six of Crows duology, I think one of the best ways to talk about those themes is kind of character by character. And I think for this book and kind of the whole series, but in a lot of ways, this book in particular focuses on Adam and Gansey and the issue of class and money and things like that. And it's kind of a really interesting focus for a young adult novel. It's very kind Mm -hmm. of lofty um, in a lot of ways. It's not something that I think a lot of teenagers have to reckon with in quite this way. So we talked about this at the top, uh, but Gansey is very wealthy, comes from old Southern money. Adam grows up in a trailer park and has no money. And as we come to find out throughout the novel, has an abusive father. So Adam goes to Aglenby because he is looking for a way to get out of Henrietta, out from his parents' home. He works three jobs to make up the difference from the partial scholarship that he has. And he basically is running himself ragged, trying to keep up with the academic obligations that he has so that he can eventually get into a good college and leave town and also working himself (laughs) to to death, basically, to afford the school. He defines himself so much by his lack of wealth, especially in comparison to Gansey and Ronan and every other student at Aglenby. He sees it as such a, like an obvious stark thing about him. He constantly frets over like a tiny um, loose thread in his hand-me-down Aglenby sweater. He's very, very, very self-conscious about it. And, you know, in contrast with somebody like Gansey, who is very unconscious about the way his wealth is perceived by other people, and especially people like Adam, who don't have any of that, it it creates a lot of like really authentic and interesting conflict between them mm-hmm. that I think is is really interesting. Yeah. One of the things I think that is really interesting. So we don't meet that. We don't really know much about these characters 
before the novel takes place. Uh, but what we do know about Gansey and kind of where he came from is that uh, seven years ago, he was he steps on a, a wasp nest in a forest and is stung by wasps like all over his body, and he dies. He actually dies and comes back to life because this kind of disembodied voice speaks to him and says, someone is dying on the ley line when they should not. So you will live when you should not. Right. And then it says something about Glendower, right? Yeah. It says, I think in the beginning it says, because of Glendower, you will live when you should not. Yes. Yes. So we know that Gansey has this death experience. And so part of what makes him really interesting is that he is very cavalier about the fact that he comes from this wealthy background, but he also is very cognizant of the fact that he has given been given a second chance at life and he needs to make it worth something. And being who he was raised to be this, you know, Richard Campbell Gansey, the third, very much a, a part of this wealthy Republican machine essentially is not what he thinks is a worthwhile way to take advantage of this second chance at life. So it's really interesting, I think, to see his kind of learning process through through that experience and also from meeting someone like Adam who pushes back on his privilege in a lot of really interesting ways. Yeah, I think what's interesting about Gansey is he is very aware of his privilege, but not at the same time. Like he thinks all the time, Oh, I am just my money. That's all people see when they look at me. And he really despairs of this. And he also puts a ton of pressure on himself to over overachieve and to succeed and to make his mark and to make a big difference in the world. Because he thinks that because of his privilege, if he doesn't do more with his, with his life, then he's the worst sort of person. And right. so he's he's got this, and he's just terrified all the time that people don't like him and that people only see him for his money. And so he's got just this, and Gansey is such a, like a tragic figure for being this rich white boy. And, right. and I mean, Gansey is, nev- is not at all the typical kind of character that I would really attach myself to and love because of that. Mm-hmm. But because of that, that self-awareness and that, deep well of sadness and just anxiety within him. I think he's just a really rich he's really character. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. rich in more ways. Than yeah. That's truly the gift of this series for me is exactly what you said. We sh- you would not think that this wealthy white boy is going to like steal your heart the way that he does, but he is such a good friend and he is so concerned about the rest of them. And is trying so much harder to to buck off this the, these obligations and this this family that he's born and in, been into and everything that goes along with that it's it's a really endearing thing to say and he he is really cognizant of that from the beginning you know he talks about how you know, he never realized the consequences of his actions. He thinks about how Adam says things to him, says things to him, like things cost money, Gansey. Like you have to be cognizant of this. At the beginning, he's like trying to fix his car and he gets oil all over his khaki pants. And he's like, I shouldn't be so careless. Some people really have to work hard Mm -hmm. to buy khaki pants. It's not something he has to think about. So it's really interesting to see him struggle with that from the beginning. And how he looks at Adam as 
kind of who he wants to be. They're both so imperfect in this mm-hmm. first book. I it's and they're struggling so much, but there's a really interesting moment where he goes to his parents' house, Gansey does, and he's in his father's garage with all of these fancy cars. And Gansey drives an old Camaro, which is orange and calls it the pig. And it's kind of a piece of crap. It keeps breaking down all the time. And his dad makes some disparaging remarks about it. And it's like, why don't you want to drive one of these fancier cars? And he's, he says something about how he had this theory that the car was like a wrapper for the person and what it, what the car looked like was a reflection of who the person was. And he didn't want to look like one of those fancy cars. He wanted his insides to look more like the Camaro, which was to say like Adam. Right. And that's another kind of like product of, of growing in that like class system and and being a little bit of a classist is he doesn't realize how things like that come across. So he sees Adam as more real and more authentic than he is himself. And that's because he's poor. And I'm not sure why he sees Adam as, I think because he sees himself as just being so wrapped up in all these fancy things. And like, that's, that's fair. But also he's not really perceiving like he sees that Adam is abused and has a lot of troubles in his life, but he's not really seeing he's, he's looking at Adam's exist existence through these like rose colored glasses, you know, kind of um, romanticizing his poverty in a way where he thinks Adam is a more real person than he is. It's a really good way to put it. And I think a lot of that comes from this idea of there being two separate Gansies, which pretty every character that we get a POV from, at least of the main crew, we only get Adam blue and Gansy's POV in this book, but all, all of them, including Gansy himself, think about how there's two different Gansies, the Gansy who's presented outside to the world. And then this interior Gansy, then the interior Gansy is, is what is what ultimately makes Gansy the most endearing is that he is this nerd who is so into this Glendower quest for a lot of reasons, obviously because a a disembodied voice tells him that puts him on this path to finding Glendower, but uh, because it's just the the research, the the process of finding Glendower. He's an academic. Yes. He loves, he he loves the journey. He absolutely does. And so he's he's trying to figure out this this dissonance between his external self and who he wants to be on the inside. And what he does, I think, kind of correctly peg Adam for and what he wants to emulate in himself when he looks at Adam is that there is not that same dissonance between necessarily who Adam is on the outside and, and who he is on the inside. He's more of a of a complete person. Um mm-hmm. And it's it's really interesting to to see how I think through all four of the books, then it moves towards this this unification of Gansey into he like I think becomes a much more solidified version of himself, or at right. least he feels becomes more himself. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. He, st- he stops caring as much about what other people will think about him if he does such and such things and he's wearing his insides on his outside more more often I think right and just as Adam comes into his own confidence a lot more where he stops thinking so much about oh I'm poor and I'm this and and that's all people see when they look at me he he gets a lot more confidence too like he starts believing that he's earned his spot in Aglanby and believing that he 
I guess I, I don't want to get that far into the future right now, but you know what I mean? He, he comes into himself a lot more too. He does. And what Nancy I Nancy and Adam have like the most fraught relationship out of anybody else in the group. And that's counting anybody and Ronan who is, who wants to fight <laughs> oh, everybody all the time. All them, but yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. They really do have this fraught relationship in a lot of ways. Like in, we said in this book, they don't quite have the correct measure of each other. Adam says a lot of things in this book about how, you know, Gamzee wants all of his things in one place. For, there, a big struggle in this book is the fact that Gamzee is loaded. He owns the building in which he and Ronan and Noah live, and he desperately wants more than anything for Adam to live with him because he knows, they all know that Adam is being physically abused by his father. And despite that, any logical person in a lot of ways would look at a friend who wants to help you when you're in that situation, uh, would look at that and be like, I understand where this is coming from. But Adam, because he's Adam, looks at that and says, no, Gansy just wants to collect me. He wants to exert this control over me. And for Adam, that is so unappealing. And for Adam, that's inherently tied into Gansy's wealth and and who he is. Mm-hmm. And that's just not anywhere in the realm of who of who Gansy wants to be. So the most painful fraught moments between them in this book are, are uh, them completely <sighs> misunderstanding each other and Gansy oh misrepresenting himself. Because Gansy, as he says multiple times in this book, he his words are unerring tools like of mass destruction, and he is completely unable to disarm them basically he says some off the cuff really stupid shit and stuff that sounds condescending or or is worse he does this kind of weird victim blamey stuff sometimes when it comes to adam and his abuse because he doesn't he sees it as kind of a black and white situation where look your dad hits you walk away and for adam it's not about that because the way adam sees it is his dad owns him now but if he accepts Gansy's help, then Gansy will own him. And being owned by anybody or anything to Adam is the worst possible outcome of any situation. Right. One of the things I wanted to talk with you about that I think is really interesting about that then is where this book kind of ends up for Adam. So he uh, he says at one point in one of his POV chapters, Adam does, that Gansy longed for him, him being Glendower, like Arthur longed for the Grail, drawn by a desperate but nebulous need to be useful to the world, to make sure his life meant something beyond champagne parties and white collars by some complicated longing to settle an argument that waged deep with, inside himself, which I think is a good read on, That's on a, Gansy. Yeah. That's exactly kind of what he's mm-hmm. doing. But then the next sentence is, Adam, on the other hand, needed that royal favor. And so it's really interesting to me that Adam is so unwilling to accept help from Gansey, but he's willing to take on this very just kind of out there undefined favor, which to me is not him making it on his own, not him yeah. doing things on his own terms. So it's well, re- he thinks it'll be on his own terms if he is the one that finds Glendower, and that's why he gets so up in arms against Gansey when Gansey tries to man of the search himself, even though it was Gansey's search first. Gansey willingly brought Adam into it. Adam doesn't like Gansey being in control. Like Adam, I think he feels that he will have earned that favor if he does it himself. Right. And so, yeah. That for me, so the first time I read this book, 
in the first in the book after this too in particular is like a kind of tough look for our friend Adam. It's really hard to like Adam. It's not quite as hard in this book, but it is frustrating to read him in the, these first couple of books because you don't quite know enough about him yet, but it's so hard to see him just kind of think himself in into these corners. His logic is not the most solid on some of these issues. And so but it is frustrating as the reader to see you you're in Gansey's head, you know that he has these kind of noble thoughts when it comes to the quest and how it is also a way for him to provide some own internal validation into his life so then to see adam be like i want this wish i want to find glendower so i can take that and it's true gansey is not concerned so much with the wish element as he is with finding glendower but it's frustrating to see adam who's part of this this group and and we didn't mention this, but really what makes this series so special is this group of friends, despite how they're kind of constantly at odds with each other, they love each other so much. But it's so frustrating to see Adam in this first book just completely eschew all of Gansey's efforts to try to help him. And I, we know his reasonings, but then to also be like, I just want to go in there and take Glendower's yeah. wish. At least it is for me. Adam and, can be a really difficult character to like because I think he's really he's really cold and he closes mm-hmm. himself off a lot. When you get into his POV, it's deeply sad. Like there, yes. there's just a lot of like bro, like he considers himself broken, like just fundamentally irretrievably broken. And he had no affection growing up from his parents or from any family. So he's just, he's a very cold person. He has a hard time expressing himself throughout the series. He, goes through so much change, but you have to go through it to get there and you have to go through it with him. Adam, um, he became a character that was much more likable to me once I started forgiving him for his own trauma and his reactions to it. Because I think think one of my problems with Adam is that I see myself a lot in him too much. Mm -hmm. Adam is a representation of everything about myself that I don't like. So once I kind of, I had to forgive myself to appreciate Adam more as a character. And I think that's just, that's just one of those things. Adam is a difficult character to like, but I think it's because he's a reflection of some of our worst thoughts about ourselves. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. And he's, he's presented through this catalyst of this horrible, abusive family situation he's in. And I think, you know, fortunately for a lot of people, Maybe they they look at that and they say, well, I've never had anything like that in my life, so I'm not like Adam. But we all have things that we are deeply insecure about. You know, Adam talks a lot. Of, I, this quote is from the beginning, and it makes me pretty sad. It's when he takes um, Declan Ronan's brother and his girlfriend into Monmouth Manufacturing, where they live, and the inside of this old warehouse just is a, a total reflection of who Gansey is on the inside. It's It's an academic's dream situation. Mm -hmm. This is Adam's thought at the time. Adam felt the familiar pang, not jealousy, just wanting. One day he'd have enough money to have a place like this, a place that looked on the outside like Adam looked on the inside. A small voice within Adam asked whether he would ever look this grand on the inside or for something you had to be born into. And so it's about money for Adam in a lot of ways, but it's also not. It's being raised in a house where he's told that he is basically has no value. And we all feel that on some level. The issue is not whether he's ever going to have money. 
to have a place that he can make be a reflection of himself. It's him ultimately being okay with, with who he, he is and making his own world a reflection of that. And he doesn't necessarily have to have money to, to do that, but for money him, that's how is, he sees it. Right. I think for him, money is the band-aid. He's like, I'm going to slap this on it and it's going to fix everything. So he orients his entire life around the around his his fina- his future financial success. Right. And for him, I think there is, you know, obviously he's in this world where there is this very strong separation between the trailer park in which he grew up in and the rest of the wealthy Adlinby world. You can't say that obviously money doesn't have a, a part in it, but it, I don't think it ultimately is the end goal here. But he but talks- when you don't have money, money always feels right, exactly. like the, the biggest uh, fix Absolutely. That, that will put a band, you know, will for, fix everything for him too. We find out too, that his motivation to try to go to Aglumby. Oh my God. This scene too makes me really upset when he goes to the grocery. This is like before the novel and he goes to the grocery store and all he's buying is like four cans of ravioli and, and a, a toothbrush or something. A tooth- a toothpaste. toothpaste. Yeah. And his mom gives him her debit card to go and he goes to pay and it's declined. But then he sees an Aglumby boy at the next aisle, just like getting drinks for him and his friends. And he just swipes the card and like moves on through the world with a, without a care. And that's what Adam wants for himself. And so it's really that security. Obviously it's really important for him, but yeah, it, it is so hard to read all of those, all of those scenes. And then obviously there's, you know, the more tangibly horrible things to read, which is the, the awful scene where, uh, we actually see his father um, beat the shit out of him, essentially. Actually, he mm-hmm. doesn't, in that scene, beat the shit out of him. He just knocks him so hard that he hits his head horribly and loses his, his hearing. Permanently loses ear. his... Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's... And the way that Adam thinks about the attack while it's happening, I think is... And this is where I'm like, how... Maggie says that she she never had that kind of childhood, but I'm just like, how many people did you talk to about this? Because it is the most, like he's sitting there being like, okay, what do I have to say to make it stop? What do I need to, I need to put myself in his shoes. How do I make this stop? How do I rationalize this? How do I, and it's, he's doing this while trying to pick himself off the ground it's with terrible. a bleed, like a bleeding ear. And it's, it's it's so devastating. It's and and the way that Robert Parrish, his father, like he knocks Adam down, and then he he says, "I'm not going to stop talking about this just because you threw yourself on the ground." Like yeah. the way that he words it, yeah. so that he is not at all at fault. It is it is really difficult. It's really hard. And then, like we intimated at the beginning, with the most frustrating and fraught and upsetting scene of all these fraught and frustrating scenes between Adam and Gansey is after Gansey picks him up from the hospital. And Adam really has no choice at that point. He has to leave his family's home because he, in after the aftermath of this fight, Ronan had just dropped him off at home and comes back and Ronan gets into a physical fight with Adam's dad he gets the, a shot of it's Robert very Parrish, and it very is satisfying. the best, the best but, thing. But Adam has to make a decision in that moment because his mom had always encouraged him, don't say anything if he gets arrested. Then we don't have any money. We don't have this. We don't have that. And 
Adam knows that because the cops are there and they're dragging Ronan away. They're arresting Ronan. They're not arresting his dad. And he has a choice to make in that moment. And he chooses knowing full well that it means he won't be able to return back to his home. He chooses to say, no, Ronan was protecting me. It's my dad's fault. I want to press charges. So he has to leave home at that point, but it's, it's not how he wanted to leave the house. And Gansey, we're in Gansey's POV at that point. Gansey knows that this is never how he wanted Adam to have to leave the house. He he knows that Adam is struggling with this. He wants Adam to be able to ride out of there uh, in on his own terms, which is a great little bit of foreshadowing for what we get from Adam in the, mm-hmm. the very last uh, chapter of the series. But Adam in that moment is just like, fine, Gansey, you got what you want. And he's so... Yeah. I think because Adam is really going through it, like he really, he just got the shit kicked out of him. He just lost his ear, his hearing permanently. He's had to leave. He's had to finally accept Gansey's offer to live with him. He is in, in all term, in all senses of the word defeated right now. And he needs to put the blame on somebody and he's choosing to put it on Gansey. Yeah. Unfairly. Completely. He says some very vicious things to Gansey. Like, this is what you wanted, right? This is what you want. Like, obviously, Gansey yeah, did not all your want things in one place. This, and- right. And and it's very unfair. But Gansey in this moment needs to shut up. Yeah, like, he, he does. And he cannot. He needs to. This is one of those moments where you need to just take it. You need yeah. to take that that abuse he's hurling at you because he is going through something far worse right now. Right. Than the feelings of yours that he's hurting. And. Gansey, yeah. like, oh, why, why Gansey? He tells him, "Oh, the hospital told me that you didn't have insurance. I paid the bill." He didn't need to bring that up. Now that was not a necessary conversation. He should have no. sat there quietly while Adam dealt with his shit. And yeah. Gansey, in the worst thing he says, because Adam accuses him of being condescending. Gansey <laughs> says, um, "I'm sorry that your father didn't teach you what oh, repugnant means." He didn't, he was too busy smashing your head against your trailer wall while you apologized for existing. No, it's really bad. Gansy, Gansy. It is the worst. Oh, and you know, he's just reacting to the mean shit, you know, to getting his feelings hurt by Adam, but he shouldn't be reacting to anything right now. He should just be letting Adam react. But it leads to one of the most, I think, in the entire series, one of the most heartbreaking lines or paragraphs from Gansy. And it says, in the end, he was nobody to Adam. He was nobody to Ronan. Adam spit his words back at him and Ronan squandered however many second chances he gave him. Gansey was just a guy with a lot of stuff and a hole inside him that chewed away more of his heart every year. Ugh. It hurts. <laughs> it hurts. It hurts. And, you know, I really, one of the reasons I think we, that like we can't, it, it, it's hard to talk about this book without talking about everything because we like know eventually like they're in a much better place. But I really don't think that by the end of this novel that these two are in a particularly great place. Either. They're in a bad place at yeah. the end of the book because Adam has gone and done the thing Gansey has explicitly asked him not to. Right. And again, for Gansey, so and that's the sacrifice that Adam makes. Adam sacrifices his free will, which is the most important thing to him, to Cave's water, to awaken the ley line, to prevent Welk from doing it. But he does it in a way that he is not, he internally even knows that he should not be doing. He sneaks off in the middle of the night after Gansey's been like, no, it's too dangerous. We're not going down this path. This is my quest. 
I no, we're just not doing this. And they're like, no, you know, we have to do it. Adam sneaks off from Monmouth Manufacturing in the middle of the night and drives to Cave's Water with the intention of doing this ritual to awaken the late line. But it, he he's there then and he sees Welk with Blue's aunt uh, and they're they're getting ready to perform the ritual at that time. But then the rest of the gang shows up and he says, you know, his relief was palpable, was, but so was his shame. And him sneaking off to do it is not the way to do it either. But then after all this and the dust settles, you know, Gansey asks, why was I so awful? And 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 it was, it was never about you, but it is about Gansey. Like he he did this in a, a way, in a kind of a dir- very direct response to everything that's been going on with him, with him and Gansey in this The mutual admiration and the mutual jealousy between the two of them is just, it's so compelling. It's so rich. It's. Yeah, I love it. I love them both. My sad, broken boys. Yeah. I love you. And it's crazy when, I mean, in Call Down the Hawk, we see Adam is in in college and he's finally Mm -hmm. like living his best life, right? Mm -hmm. And he has essentially turned himself into Gansey. Like he has taken Gansey's persona and because he wants to create this new life for himself in this new existence mm-hmm. erase the him that is traumatized and and has all this post-traumatic stress and just create him, himself new mm-hmm. and he makes himself Gansey because at the end of the day as much as he resents Gansey as much as he's jealous of Gansey he admires Gansey the most yeah he does so I think with my declaration about how I love these sad broken boys Let's turn to our other sad broken boy, Mr. Ronan Lynch. Now, good time to talk about him. It's always good times to yeah. talk about Ronan Lynch. We Ronan Lynch. love Ronan Lynch. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> listeners, we apologize in advance. We have no chill. Yeah, this He's is a- just a disclaimer. Ronan is my number one fave in this series. I completely adore him. He doesn't get a POV chapter in this book, so you don't really get very much of him. Mm-hmm. But already right away, he was my favorite just because he is my type of favorite. You know, he's kind of an asshole. He, yeah, just kind of an asshole. Yeah, so the Ronin stuff in particular is why I think we have to talk about spoilers here because most of his stuff comes from like foreshadowing and also just like fundamental misunderstanding by everyone else of who he is. And Mm -hmm. that's what's really kind of interesting about his stuff in this book. So we do get in this book Ronin's background, which was that Gansey knew him first um, when he first came to Aglamigas before Adam even started there. And Ronin had this pretty happy family life and then uh his father is horrifically and violently beaten to death with a tire rod on their the in front of their home and ronan is the one who finds him and since that time ronan has been a very different person in a in a, in a dark place and has very antagonistic relationship with his brother who we get glimpses of his older brother declan who is now his guardian uh and is just not doing well in a lot of ways. He's drinking a lot and he's just taken on this very prickly persona. Prickly is a gentle way of putting how Ronan is at this point. Yeah. At, at one point, I think Gansy says he was afraid that someone was going to fall on Ronan and cut themselves. Yeah. And he so- is just sharp edged. He is, is aggressive and mean and he likes fights and street Mm -hmm. racing and he 
has no respect for authority. He right. is, does not have a good relationship with anybody at school. Right. And so Gansey has this mother hen complex where he's just constantly worried about Adam and Ronan. And we talked a lot about, you know, why he's so worried about Adam, but why he's so worried about Ronan is that part of Ronan's dad's will is that his three kids, his three sons would get all of his money, but they had to vacate the family home and they can't live there and have to move into the Aglenby dorms. And Gansey strikes a deal with Ronan's older brother, Declan, that allows Ronan to live in Monmouth Manufacturing with Gansey, but you know, he has to do well in school. And Ronan is just totally done with school at this point. And it's hard because in a lot of ways, uh, Gansey is being really overbearing. He says something at one point about, or Adam says something to him about, you know, you have to let him figure it out himself. You have to let him be the one to pull himself back up. And Gansey says, no, I, that he's afraid that Rowan's going to get used to living in the dirt, that that's just going to become his new normal. And that's not really for Gansey to figure out. But on mm -hmm. the other hand, when Ronan does fail out of Agamemnon, gets kicked out, and Gansey essentially pays a bribe to, he does pay a bribe, to the principal of Agamemnon to keep Ronan there. Uh, Declan is like, he's, he's, he can't live here. He's, he's done living with you here. And Adam thinks, well, this is going to kill Ronan. So it's hard because he does, he needs to be with them, but it's tied to going to Agamemnon at this point. And so Gansey just has so much anxiety about mm -hmm. that. But I think, I don't know if it's totally in part because he is so concerned, hyper-focused Gansey is on keeping Ronan and Aglenby, or if he's so kind of desperate to get Ronan back to his pre, his father's death, like the state that he was in and who Ronan was before that instant, that he's now has this, I think, really fundamental misunderstanding about who Ronan is, this new Ronan is. In a lot of ways. All right. Well, and he doesn't know the biggest thing about Ronan, which is that he's a dreamer like his father was, and he can pull things from his dreams. And that includes nightmares, which means that Ronan is in a constant state of just what, what the fuck is happening. But Gansey, so he doesn't know this, the biggest thing or any of the biggest things about Ronan, who Ronan is. But mm -hmm. I think Gansey's thing is that he says it's at some point in the Raven King, I think when his sister finds out that he has essentially sold Monmouth man manufacturing to the Dean in order to get Ronan a, a diploma. Mm -hmm. And he says he, he was worried that he just didn't want it because his dad had died and he didn't want him to spend the rest of his life regretting not finishing school just because he was in a bad place. And I yeah. think that's that's kind of where Gansey is coming from, is that he's worried that this new Ronin, and, and you know, this is a new Ronin, but maybe he's not going to be forever Ronin, and maybe Ronin one day will be able to be over his grief enough to want things again. Right. And he doesn't want him to have thrown all of that away before he figured it out that he wanted it. Right. I think, though, then one of the things that's frustrating and what I actually find really rewarding to pick up on now knowing Ronan way better than I did the first time I read this book, obviously, is that one of the things that's so striking to me is that Gansey says that Ronan is a liar. He calls him a liar when uh, Ronan has made this promise to him that he's going to 
not keep going down this destructive path in the same way. And he says, well, you're a liar. And that is the complete opposite of who Ronan is. Ronan is honest to a fault in a lot of ways. Uh, at one point when he is uh, insulted someone or another, I think Adam thinks that Ronan had chosen his weapon well, only the truth untempered by kindness. So he is, he is very sharp, but he's not a liar. And what is great then is to see uh, there's a lot of really good subtle blue Ronan moments in this first book. Their friendship is really special to me. But when, you know, Gansey also thinks that that Ronan doesn't care about anyone, that he dislikes everyone, therefore he's not a good judge of character. But then Blue, when she meets Ronan, thinks that the approval of someone like him who clearly cared for no one seems like it would be worth more. So she knows that Ronan isn't necessarily just an asshole who like doesn't like anyone not to like anyone. He just is only going to reserve his respect and his admiration and his friendship for people he thinks are really worth it. Yeah. I mean, look at his complete and utter devotion to Gansey. Oh, my God. I mean, he he is just... <laughs> utterly <laughs> devoted to Gansey. I just collapsed. Yeah. <laughs> I like, literally just fell out of her chair. Um, yeah, there it's, oh, it's so special. Ronan is absolutely like blue has the right measure of Ronan there. Because right. He is absolutely the type that, yeah, he on principle will hate everybody upon meeting them. Mm-hmm. But if you are worthy enough to be brought into his circle, he will bring you into his circle, but it will take time and it will be an effort that is, Hopefully worth it. Right. I think so because I think yeah. Ronan, you couldn't get a more devoted friend than Ronan. Yeah. He really couldn't. And 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 I think because neither neither Adam nor Blue knew Ronan before his dad died, they are just presented with Ronan as he is now and they're able to parse through it more, whereas Gansey has like pre his father's death Ronan like at the front of his mind at all times. Yeah, I think that's something Gansey's dealing with is trying to reconcile the two and maybe accept the Ronan that meets somewhere in the middle. Right. A good example too of like who Ronan is is that after they find out that Noah is actually a ghost and was horrifically murdered. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a minute. But um (laughs) You know, no, the car thing, the car thing you're going to oh, say that, right? I wasn't, but yeah, we'll oh, get there. So first, okay. I don't know what exactly they're doing, but Adam's at Monmouth Manufacturing and like Ronan's in his room and Adam thinks to himself that he doesn't want to disturb Ronan because he knows that Ronan in his own way is mourning for Noah. Because mm-hmm. he's <sighs> in there being, he's drinking and being destructive. But Adam knows because Adam knows Ronan better than, than Gansey does. And that right. is just a, that is just a fact because Ronan see or sorry, Adam sees that Ronan is not somebody that needs the kitty gloves. It does not need right. to have his life managed for him. He needs to be allowed to fall down and to pick himself back up. Right. And that's the only thing that's going to get him out of this this downward spiral of self-destruction that he's on is to let him destruct a little bit. Right. Yeah. So he sees that Ronan is in his room being destructive and drinking, but in his own way, like you said. He is grieving for Noah. Right. It's and just Ronan is a is a cactus. Yeah. He really he's is prickly as shit, but he's he's all soft inside. Yeah. And then let's talk about that moment. Uh, it's so beautiful. Uh, okay, yeah. So this I have this down as one of my platonic swoon moments because there aren't a lot of like strict strictly romance. swoony moments yeah. in this first book. But one of my platonic swoon moments is when they are, I think they're going to find Adam in Caveswater where he's confronting Welk 
Correct. And they they come ac- across Noah's car where Noah ha- is writing frantically over and over again, murdered, murdered, murdered all over his car in the dust or in the pollen. And Ronan walks over and writes remembered, which is just it's so good. I just gave myself goosebumps talking yeah. about that. <laughs> he's such a good boy. But yes, he does. He's going through a lot. He uh, one of the things I think is really interesting that we get hints of it, this book, uh, it, but we don't learn what it means until the next book, The Dream Thieves, is that Gansey thinks that Ronan had tried to kill himself and is like terrified that Ronan's going to do this again. But really what it was is that Ronan had pulled nightmares from his dreams and they have a physical manifestation, which is like very violent and scary. And they like, he was horribly wounded, but it looked as though he like, right. Like, cut wrist slashes. Correct. So no one knows that, that that's going on within Ronan's mind. He's trying to to deal with that. At one point, he says to in this moment kind of broke my heart as well. Ronan said, I don't know what I want. I don't know what the hell I am. I, he he's he's struggling with a lot of stuff. And the next book is the Ronan book. So you get a lot more of, right. of who he is and that gets all flushed out more. But I like now it's really rewarding to see the peppering of who Ronan mm-hmm. really is here. Lots of such good. I think we, we should just talk about the Ronan foreshadowing. It's great. Like yeah. all the, we, we both have written down a lot of um, notes just about the little hints of Ronan foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a great moment when they go to uh, Blue's house to get their readings done, their tarot readings done by um, Blue's mother and Cal and Persephone, her two live-in best friends slash fellow psychics. And Calla... So Calla is describing what it was like to... Because Calla has an ability where... Um, it's psychometry. She can touch something and then pick up psychic vibes from it. Right. So she touches Ronan because he's a, being a shit and he wants something specific to prove that they're real psychics. So she touches him and um, tells him a secret kill, killed your father and you know what it was and makes him storm out. And then later she's explaining to the other women, she says, it's like scrying into that weird space. There's so much coming out of him. It shouldn't be possible. So you remember that woman who came in who was pregnant with quadruplets? It was like that, but worse. He's pregnant, Blue asked. He's creating, Kala said. That space is creating too. I don't know how how to say it better than that. So that is a really good, crunchy little moment of going, hmm. you know, because after after Rona says, says, I don't know what I am. And mm-hmm. you're like, all right, that seems dramatic or whatever, because we don't know what he could possibly be talking about. Right. And neither does Gansey or anybody else. Right. But then you get little hints like this and you're right. like, okay, but what is he then? Right. And then we, we do get that reveal at the end, but before we get that, I, I saw this and I literally like guffawed. I was like, oh. <laughs> Adam, when he's like walking through caves water to like go and make the sacrifice, he thinks, oh, caves water was just as literal as Ronin. And we don't find out until the Raven King that Ronin dreamt all of Caves Water into yeah. being. Yeah. So when they first go to Caves Water, and one of the characters notes that Ronan looks guarded and kind of scared. 
And that is 100% because he recognizes this place. This is his dream space. Right. So he's probably like, what is going on? Right. And then we also get like the writing on the rock and Mm -hmm. in Ronan's hand. It's all. In the trees knowing who he was. Exactly. It's, It's so good. And then it's really nice, too, because we get one of the truest versions of Ronan in this book in Caves Water when he's translating what the trees are saying in Latin. So only... Only Blue and Gansey can hear what the trees are saying, right? No, only Noah and Gansey because they are made from the ley line. There you go. Only Noah and Gansey can hear it. So Gansey's like saying the words in Latin and then Ronan is translating them because Ronan and Adam are Latin whizzes and it's very important (laughs) to them (laughs) and who they are (laughs) in the relationship. But uh, very important to me too. And to me, too. <laughs> never knew I could love a dead language until now. I know, right? But Ronan is so concentrated on translating the Latin that he forgets to look. Oh, uh, they forgets to look cool or surly. So yeah. it's 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 really nice to see that stuff there. Yeah, it really is just like a jacket he puts on. Just like there are two versions of Gansey, there are endless versions of Ronan. Because as you see, when we get into the second book, and we'll save most of this for then, but. There is so much more underneath that is going on with Ronan. So much under the surface mm-hmm. that we haven't even begun to to pick at yet. Right. Um. And here's another one that is Ronan said, "I'm always straight." Adam replied, <laughs> "Oh man, that's the biggest lie you've ever told." Yeah. And I think this is another great example of the way Maggie throws vital information at the reader in a way that makes us not necessarily pick up pick up on it. I'm curious though, like I, I've always tried to parse this, this uh, moment here. I don't know if Adam meant that's the biggest lie you've ever told as like an honest response to Ronan's assertion that he never lies, or did he mean it as like a joke, like a play on words, oh, ha ha, like a gay joke type of thing, or does he know that about Ronan already? Even though Ronan hasn't really had that conversation even with himself yet. Yeah, that's something we should really definitely keep in uh, mind when we read the Dream Thieves to see like what Adam knows. I wouldn't be surprised if it's that third option that he realizes that Ronan is gay. Adam is very observant. He's so observant. And that's they say in here at some point that, that there's a quote in here about how Adam is such a good he's so observant and only Gansey ever notices that he's the Mm -hmm. one who's always kind of working on the side and, and, and really watching things in that same way. So I think he, based on how well he has run impact in this book, I think he, he knows. And I think then this is a good point to talk about too. I think there's just some really lovely nods to Ronan and Adam being endgame in this book. First of all, mm-hmm. I'd like the record to reflect that I am immensely <laughs> proud of us that we are over an hour into recording and neither you nor I have talked yet about the couple that is Ronan Lynch and Adam Parrish. This is our biggest spoiler that we knew we would not be able to rein into ourselves yeah. because they are my number one OTP of like time. Yeah. And, and the and build up of that relationship is... It's really important. It's so to me. rich and it's re- yeah, and it's something that we're gonna need to to discuss all the way through. Yes. So, so that there's no way to we, throw that in that spoiler and, zone. And because there are things here that really highlight that the moment where uh they find the rock with the Latin on there, someone like blue asks, you know, what language is this? And it, it says Adam and Ronan say together, Latin. 
and Latin is a very big part of their relationship. So we get that nice moment there. And then there's just a lot of moments where Maggie directly compares and contrasts them to each other. Mm-hmm. That is shows how they're opposites, but then ultimately when they do click together and, and they do end up being together, it makes so much more sense. Yeah. And in the same way that I, I said that Adam understands Ronan far better than Gansey does or, or anybody does. He understands what makes Ronan tick in the same exact way Ronan does too. He understands Adam in a way that Gansey doesn't. And that's why Ronan sometimes serves as this really interesting purpose of being the go-between between Adam and Gansey yeah. in the way that if they're fighting, Ronan's solution is to not go and talk to anybody because that would be way too obvious about having feelings and shit. So what he does is he does something even more offensive than either one of them could do to get them to get along again. Makes himself the scapegoat, essentially. Yeah. Because he knows that it's not going to get resolved because both of them have too much pride on the line. Both both of them are, are too in their own heads. Right. Here's just a couple of examples of the direct comparison. Um, so this is sometimes after Adam had been hit, there was something remote and absent in his eyes, like his body belonged to someone else. When Ronan was hit, it was the opposite. He became so urgently present that it was as if he had been sleeping before. Then another point uh, in comparison to Ronan, Adam looked clean, self-contained, utterly in control. It, it's So it's just, it, they're shown as being, you know, two, two completely different people, but I think they're really just two opposite sides of the same coin. And it's really Mm -hmm. uh, nice to see that. I can't remember who said this, but somebody said Adam uses kindness to cover his anger and Ronan uses anger to cover his kindness. That's a... And that is just a perfect description of the two of them and why they work so well. Yeah. And then I think, you know, there's just some moments that are set up really well that come later i think it's really interesting so much of this book is fighting adam fighting with gansey about his living situation and you know as you said adam says to gansey it means i will never get to be my own person if i let you cover for me then i'm yours i'm his now and then i'll be yours his being his father one of the most astounding moments in the book then to me is when adam finds out that ronan has engaged in this like very an endearing subterfuge like creating like a he basically like comes up with a story to allow him to pay for adam's rent or to cover the tuition increase at aglamby and mm-hmm. adam finds out doesn't say anything about it and eventually just tells him like i know that was you and ron's like oh shit he's on me <laughs> but he- <laughs> i love it and ronan also does it in like the most because ronan is ronan and he's kind of an idiot like we love him but he just does things he's all like he thinks because he knows that at first Adam blames Gansey for it. Right. But then he's like, if Adam just thought about it for half a second, like who else would go to the Catholic church and like bully somebody into making up a lie about a tax, right. whatever, a tax break? Because it is, it, that's got Ronan all over it. Right. So it's just like, it's really interesting to see. We, there's a whole chapter here, and I didn't talk about it earlier, but where Gansey, it's so hard to read. He's going through all these internal machinations about how how can I bring up to Adam that he's working himself so hard can I suggest it this way no he'll know what I'm doing can I can I do it this way no he's gonna think this and 
Ronan is the one then who ultimately cracks the code of what to get Adam to accept. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's like they're in love and they're meant to be in their soulmates, whatever. So of course, all that <laughs> obviously plays into Adam's decision to like roll with it. But it's really interesting to see too, because Ronan is just as wealthy as Gansey. He's not like old money wealthy. We find more about where his money comes from, but it's so interesting. Adam even thinks at one point about this, this conversation he once had with Gansey and in in Ronan, where Ronan says, hey, I'm rich and it doesn't bother me. He doesn't have those same feelings of animosity towards Ronan in a lot of ways. Yeah. So it's really interesting to see all that kind of uh, shaked out here. It's and- almost like Gansey's rich boy guilt makes Adam more resentful of him. Yeah. Whereas with Ronan, he's just like, ah. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't give a shit anyway, so who cares? And then I just really like this moment. There, are, This will be a good segue into talking about Blue because uh, this book is a lot of time spent on this budding romance between Blue and Adam. And knowing that that is not who either of them end up with is 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 really interesting to see it. But there's this moment where uh, Ronan is trying to teach Adam to drive stick. <laughs> and it's like, this is Adam. Like... This is not normal behavior if you aren't like crushing on someone. He, this is his from his POP. As Adam stared at his lap penitent, he mused that there was something musical about Ronan when he swore a careful and loving precision to the way he fit the words together, a black painted poetry. It was far less hateful sounding than when he didn't swear. Adam, that's such a my crush. dude, that's Come a crush. On. That is such a crush. He's like staring at his laugh. Like, okay. You, you're you not going to sit there and think that the way somebody cusses at you is beautiful unless you are like in it. Low key in love. Come on. Yeah. It's yeah. fine. It's fine. So then let's talk about Blue because I feel, and we've talked about this a lot, why we don't have the same like feelings of intensity about Blue as we do for these other other characters in this book. And I think what we kind of closed in on is that she is just maybe not as interesting. It's not as compelling because she does not have the same horrific backstory, right. which is like good for blue. I, that's great. We, I'm right, happy. Cause all of these boys are so broken in so many different ways. And blue is mostly fine. Like she had a, a good childhood. She had, she was surrounded by people that loved her. Right. She had issues. Of course, growing up in a psychic house where you are not psychic is Correct. gonna hit. Um, not knowing who your dad is, is, is an issue she has, but it's really not, a lot of it is just her wanting more from life, her not wanting to be a sidekick in somebody else's story. These are all totally understandable and um, relatable issues, but there is not like that deep, deep well of sadness inside of her that there is with all of those other boys. So she is harder to feel things for, I guess. Yeah, I and and I get that totally. But what I do feel when I reread these books is that I just have such an appreciation for her because in what is particularly in this first book lays a lot of the groundwork. She is the catalyst for mm-hmm. this all starting, and she's such an important. She has such an important role in the story. Then for that reason, and the quest doesn't really begin in earnest until she. She's the final piece that they need to to make things happen. And I think there's a really interesting moment when, you know, we're learning all about like the the readings that her mom and Cal and Persephone are doing for the boys. And the card that's equated with blue is the cups. 
and how they Magic are. Cups. Yeah. And so they're, you know, they're empty. They're full of possibility. And, and that's what blue is here. She is the beginning in this possibility for the, the quest really kicking into year in, in earnest here. And I love seeing those little seeds peppered in here. And what I think is also the most interesting part of blue's story is that, you know, this book starts off with a bang. Maggie really knows how to start a book. And we find out in that first chapter in the prologue that she sees Gansey. She's not a seer. She sees his spirit walking on St. Mark's Eve. And she is told that, well, the only reason a non-seer would see them is that you kill him or he's your true love. Or both. Or both. <laughs> <case>. <laughs> or both. Spoiler. <laughs> uh, but what's really interesting is that she has this, like, it is very sweet. This uh, very sweet kind of budding romance with with Adam here. Uh, and she is just absolutely determined not to like Yanzi for several reasons. One of which is that he's an Agile he's boys. And he, yeah, and he's Gansy. <laughs> he's wearing aquamarine polo shirts and boat shoes. And she's just he's like, an 87-year-old man trapped <laughs> in a 17-year-old boy's body. He yeah. is just embarrassing sometimes. Love him to death. But he really yeah, is. And the first time he meets her, she does not know that he's Gansy, like the Gansy spirit that she saw. So she starts calling him President Cellphone because he has this very like uh presidential that it's this external Gansy, which we talked about. It's this this politician Gansy. And he comes over to her and tries to get her to come talk to Adam, who thinks she's cute. And uh he basically calls her, insinuates that she's a prostitute. Like he just has a really offers bad... to pay her to come talk to Adam <laughs> to for, compensate like, for just... her time when he she's not waiting to not think about man, Gansy just does not think about his words like a 90% of the time. No, he doesn't. And of course she Sweet takes boy. offense to this and she's just like, I am not a prostitute. And she tells him off, and that is uh, not exactly a meet cute. It is not. It, but the way that their their thing develops is really fun. I think there's a really good line in book two. We shouldn't talk so much about book two, but whatever. Um, where she she thinks like, am I in love with him yet? Like she's testing the waters. But yeah, she, she very much doesn't want to be. She wants to like Adam, but he is a... Is a thing, very much a thing in the, these books too. Yeah. And what I really like too is how his journal is used here. So we talked about how uh, Gansy is this raging academic. It's like who he is on the inside. And she find he leaves his journal with all of his Glendower ruminations at Nino's where she works. And she takes it because she realizes that it's got to be someone's from that tables. And she looks through it all and she really gets an insight as to this is who this person is. And she spends a lot of the novel then trying to rectify who this Gansy right. in the journal is versus this external. And she tries, Gansy. she tries at first to attribute it to Adam because she wants Adam to be this person, but she just doesn't know that Gansy yet. But the way that she describes the book could easily be perfect descriptor for Gansy himself. Right. One of the things I also like too, and we'll talk in a second about the more about the Ronan and Blue friendship, which I think is really special, but they're the most like willing to believe in magic, like mystical. I mean, Ronan like pulls things from her, her dreams. Blue, we find out, is the child of like a tree spirit. <laughs> we'll talk about later. Yeah. So they like have a lot of uh, symmetry in that, but she's also a dreamer in her own way, not in the way that Ronan is, but she at the beginning talks a lot about how she just wants something more from life and she doesn't know what it is. And 
there's this quote that says, you know, the only thing was she didn't really want to see the future. What she wanted to see was something no one else could see or would see. And maybe that was asking for more magic than was in the world. And then she has this moment later where she looks at Gansey and she thinks this was the Gansey who had written the journal, the truth of it, the magic of it possessed her. So she starts off wanting to find this magic in the world and she is more open. She's the daughter of a psychic. She grew up in a psychic household. She is very in tune with the spirit and the supernatural, but I love that the magic that she finds, the magic that no one else could see or would see is the truth of Gansey. And I just was mm-hmm. like, oh, that's like such a beautiful moment yeah. between the two of them because the real, and I think it's also the real magic of these books is the fact of the relationships between these characters. The, the magic here is is very subtle and it's it's very nebulous, but that's not what really matters here mm-hmm. in this book, which is why I love, um, we didn't really talk about this at all, but when Declan brings his girlfriend over and Gansey's telling her the Glendower myth and she says, sounds like a metaphor. And I was literally like, Ashley coming in <laughs> with the thesis statement for this entire series yeah. is that this journey they're on to find Glendower is a metaphor for their own journey of of self-discovery and their relationships with each other. Yeah, spoiler alert, Maggie, for the very end, Glendower, there is no Glendower yeah, to wake up. He, they, he's not jack shit. It means absolutely nothing. And it's a yeah. metaphor. It's great. I love it. Yeah. It's full circle. I think Maggie had uh, like a post-it on her computer the entire time she was writing these books, which was like, remember the worst thing that could happen to them is that they stop being friends. And that is like the the push of all of these books is it's the friendship. It's the core of it. It is like, literally if you don't read these books and then just lament that you don't have that kind of tight group where you're off exploring the wilderness together. And, and it just feels it. uh, I've lost my words. Yeah. But yeah, I think favorite quotes, I think that really mm -hmm. in favorite moments that really illustrate the friendship. Yeah. I think that the like a really clever some of the really clever first hints at what the um, end game relationships in these books will be. We we talked about some of the comparisons between Adam and Ronan, but there's also like you said comparisons with Gansey and Blue. The way that they, I love that the the way that they see and experience Cape's water in the exact same way. Like at one point she looks at him and and she sees just that unguarded, unabashed delight and love for this place. He loved it in the same way she loved it, just purely, completely. And when they first go, like that, that is their initial reaction, just delight and wonder. And Adam and Ronan are way more guarded about it, way more suspicious, way more defensive about the whole thing. And it just kind of shows like how aligned their, yeah. their base personalities are. Yeah. Ugh, I love it. I love it. It's so good. I also think too, that this is a really interesting moment of kind of foreshadowing for where these couples end up because blue thinks at one point, something, uh, an observation about Adam was that he was good at making things quiet. And it's, it's maybe I'm like just doing some mental gymnastics to get this point here, but one of the most famous quotes in the series comes from the Raven King when Adam asks Gansey how he knows that he's, uh, in love with Blue and Gansey says she makes me quiet. And I like this idea that Adam is kind of good at making things quiet because it comes right after, oh, it's not Blue that thinks this, it's Gansey. But the sentence comes right up after Adam convinces the 
pizza place, Nino's, not to call the cops on Ronan and Declan. So it's kind of hinting that he becomes that quiet for Ronan. Like he becomes this kind of stabling, centering force for yeah. Ronan in the way that Blue becomes for Gansy. I, I don't, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think that that was no, I intentional. See it. Okay, thank yeah. you. <laughs> thank and you. I mean, it's hard not to see these these big clue dumps everywhere and, and, and think of them as not intentional because it feels like everything in these books is intentional. There's so much foreshadowing. There's so much to pick up on there, especially in reread. These books are so rewarding in reread. Speaking of clue dumps and foreshadowing, let's talk about our fifth member of the gang, the gangsy, as I like to call them. We got to talk about Noah. Yeah. I mean, I won't read your quote that you put in our notes here because it's just so true. Yeah, I still marvel at how Maggie is able to tell us right from the get that Noah is dead and nobody believes. Nobody believes her. Right. Um, Like he literally says, it's the first thing he says in the book. Um, She said once, I can't remember if it was in a tweet or at her writing seminar that I went to, but she said that she's able to lay out exactly what will happen in her books pretty much right from the beginning by throw just throwing the information right out there for anybody to see and like super obvious, but doing it in such a way that the reader reader um, either doesn't take it seriously or is distracted by something else. Like she described it, like she was dangling a set of keys, like, look at here, look over here, look over here while yeah. giving them vital information, like spoiler information but she's got us looking at something else. Right. It's it's so well done. I mean, it's so genius. It's so good. I mean, his, yeah, he talks about it so much. All the signs are there. The idea that he never eats. The uh, There's a, a very clear moment where Blue specifies that when he's, they find the car in the forest, which they later find out is Noah's car that has been left there since the day he was murdered, that he wasn't throwing up. He was retching. And then they realize later... Yeah, he can't throw going through the act. He can't throw up. He's dead. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. Um, yeah. And, and he displays throughout the book before you find out that he's been dead this whole time. He displays knowledge that he should not have. Like mm-hmm. he knows, he tells Ronan that Gansey privately told Adam he would take him anywhere he went yeah. after Henrietta. He, he was that- not there for that conversation. He also tells, no, he knows about the flowers. Yeah. Adam. He- blue Mm -hmm. there's also just a lot of in addition to the the reveal in this book of him being dead there's also a lot of endgame noah foreshadowing here too so what we find out and not until the raven king right is that this disembodied voice that speaks to gansey and tells him that he'll live when he should not Mm -hmm. is noah and Noah sets him on this path to find find Glendower, but really to find everyone else. It's what he needs right. to do. And Gansey thinks at one point when he is recounting the story of his his death and resurrection on the ley line when he steps on the last next, he's thinking back to the frightened, like the faces of the people who found him. And it, he thinks something about Noah's uneasy face reminded him of the frightened faces surrounding him, hornets on his skin. The sky blew his death above him. A long, long time ago, he'd been given another chance and lately the weight of needing to make it matter felt heavier. It actually was Noah's it face. It was Noah. It's, <laughs> and at one point, face. Noah says exactly to Gansy what he, he said, like, don't throw it away. Don't throw it away. He says it to, he says it to Adam, too. Yeah. Uh, when Adam sneaks out to go to Cave's Water. And it's so, it's so crazy how this is all just laid out there. But, like, when he tells 
when he tells Ronan that Adam sent blue flowers, instead of sitting and being like, he says, how did you know that? But immediately he is busy just being embarrassed that he knew. Doesn't think that hardly about it. Uh, that hard about it. And so neither do we. Oh, and so he also says at one point too, like, I won't be here. No reply. I'm almost gone anyway. He knows that he's kind of circling through time and he's, mm-hmm. his purpose is just to, before he goes, make sure he sends Gansy on this path. And it's, it's all laid out there. It's there. It's everything's there. Everything is because of, of Noah. It's incredible. Everything. It's Incredible crazy stuff. But, um, yeah, that's why I think it's funny when, like I read, after I read these books for the first time and I was just kind of obsessively scrolling the Tumblr tag for the series. And I remember running into some posts about how they thought that the Raven King was really rushed and it didn't make any sense. And the whole tree light thing just came out of nowhere. And, and I was like, what books were you, I like, I have my own issues with the end that aren't, like very, very minor issues mm-hmm. that that are a little bit about confusion around what happens right. at the very, very end. But I don't know how, like what books they're reading because the tree light thing was established right in the beginning. They also complained about the demon not making sense. Like where did the demon come from? Yeah, that, speaks through Neve. He speaks through Neve right yeah. in the first book. Like these things are telegraphed from yeah. a mile away. You just have to be paying attention. Yeah. The blue thinking that she want, like wants to be or she is, she envisions herself as the tree. Like, right. She, like, and her, her obsession with stars. Yeah. Um, it's, it's all laid out. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really it's incredible. Right it's it's right incredible. There the it's really, it is really incredible stuff. Yeah. I, and I, I think this is kind of a good place then too, to just briefly talk about Welk. I don't want to give him much air time. He deserved to die. I'm glad yeah. Adam let him die. I'm on Adam's side a thousand percent on yeah. that, in, in that argument. But it's a really interesting way to kind of tie back full circle to the how we start off our discussion with this idea of classism and wealth. Well, grew up as a rich, privileged, raven boy, lost all his money and is very bitter about it. He decide, he's been looking for the ley line and in, in prior to that with Noah, who was his friend, just kind of a, as a pastime, just because it's something fun to do. And as soon as he loses his money, that's when he decides he wants to do this sacrifice. And that's when he kills Noah. And it's it's awful. How much he hates all the Raven boys for representing what he lost is really, it's probably the least subtle of all of the metaphors in this book in terms of the the dangers and the of money and power yeah. and, and it's kind of a cautionary tale against it. And what I really hate too because I love Noah. Um, one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is just how for like months after I read this book, anytime I like thought about Noah, I cried. <laughs> I could cry right now. But like Welk just has a fundamental misunderstanding of Noah in that he like doesn't think he has a sense of humor and he doesn't think he's like a really good friend. He just thinks he's just kind of this simpleton who like yeah. follows him around. And the contrast then of how well Noah fits in with the group is really nice mm-hmm. and how Noah's such a good judge of character and how wonderful he and Blue's friendship is and oh, petting God. the first spiky hair. I like I can't. I have a lot of Noah feelings. So he deserved to die because of what he did to Noah. And oh a sad moment where Noah's like, I just want you to know that I was more before I died. I was so and I'm like <laughs> <laughs> sweet Noah, I love him so much my little ghost boy oh he's so good are there any other big things we want to talk about before we wrap up with some superlatives here 
Um, I don't think so. Let's get into the superlatives. Okay. So we mentioned this before, but obviously what makes this this series really special to us is this group of friends. It's very found family. Love them so much. There's some some great some great quotes about this. Adam says at one point where he's thinking about Gansey and what he really admires about him is that, you know, Gansey's very affable. He gets along with everyone, the exterior side of Gansey, but really inside he's more uh, reserved and very anxious and concerned that no one likes him. But Adam thinks about how he had chosen the three of them, Adam, Ronan, and Noah, three guys who should have for three different reasons been friendless. But then later, uh, this this comes up and the quote is even though Ronan was snarling and Noah was sighing and Adam was hesitating he didn't turn to verify that they were coming he knew they were in three different ways he'd earned them all days or weeks or months before and when it came to it they'd follow him they'd all follow him anywhere and that's just really <laughs> it's just, they all love each other so much so they all many feelings Andy. about these these kids oh. so many feelings and then full circle moment with that when Ronan has found out from Noah again in a way that Noah should not have known about Gansey offering to take Adam with him if he ever had to leave Henrietta and Ronan asks do you not want me to come which in and of itself devastates me oh god and how much it took out of Ronan just to say those words I know but he goes do you not want me to come something struck in Gansey's chest I would take all of you with me anywhere Fuck. Ah! <laughs> it's just really good. It's so good. And then I have a funny one too. We didn't talk about Chainsaw, who is Ronan's <laughs> raven that he plucks from his dreams. And Ronan, and again, showing who Ronan really is, is so concerned and is such a good parent to Chainsaw. Well, and just as 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 Gansey's journal is his heart laid bare, Chainsaw is Ronan's heart yeah. laid bare. And I, I love that so much. Yeah. And there's a good quote, I forget who says it. Some, someone has that realization about like when he holds Chainsaw, he's they're like, oh, this is I think it's Ronan blue. Yeah. Is. Yeah. Again, because blue like is very in in touch with who Ronan is mm-hmm. <laughs> but at one point Ronan goes we have to be back in three hours Ronan said I just fed chainsaw but she'll need it again this Gansey replied is precisely why I didn't want to have a baby with you <laughs> see like Gansey is funny even though he's a hundred years old yeah just oh. absolutely a hundred years old but hey, what other oh, quotes you I love them all right so in another classic dad Gansey moment Gansey contemplated if he could give Ronan a curfew or if he should quit rowing to spend more time with him on Fridays. He knew that was when Ronan got into trouble with the BMW. You're such a fucking dad. I, know, I, know. I love it so much. Maybe I should, uh, I should spend more time with him. Maybe yeah. he'll calm down. He's oh my God. such an old man. Yes. And then Blue, once she, so she, obviously she hated Gansey when she first met him, did not know he was Gansey. And then the next day he shows up, up at her house for his reading appointment and she realizes that Gansey is indeed president's cell phone and she says or she thinks all this time she'd been wondering how Gansey might die and it turned out she was going to strangle him love it fair yeah um, and then this is just like a classic line from the entire series which is safe as life yeah which is the response to really anything yeah the Camaro and mm-hmm. the helicopter the helicopter yeah, yeah it's it's good. And then another one I have, just one more. Oh, yeah. This is when Blue and Kansi go out alone together for the first time. This is when they find, this is right before they find Noah's body. Blue tried not to look at Gansy's boat shoes. She felt better about him as a person if she pretended he wasn't wearing them. 
I also totally it. fair. Yeah, I think that's what he also says. Like aquamarine is a fine color and I won't be made to feel bad about wearing it. He's wearing an aquamarine polo. <sighs> Just imagine well, him. He's walking around in khakis and an aquamarine polo shoe and boat shoes. This guy. I know. But then there's like a nice <laughs> moment then like that's where Blue is really trying to f- figure out who Gansy is. And she thinks mm-hmm. about like how he can't die. Like he should be 80 years old and like in bed, not like someone who wears an aquamarine polo and boat shoes. Like, yeah. I too much. Too much for me. All right. Favorite character and favorite character arc. We're just going to talk specifically about this book. When we do the last book, we'll talk about our series thoughts. But for this book, who's your favorite character and favorite character arc? My favorite arc is Adam. Um, Him finally, even though he was kind of forced into it, but he finally presses charges against his father and moves out. He also willingly sacrifices the most important thing to him, which is his autonomy, in order to keep the ley line from Welk. And sort of in a weird way, just gains his own independence through it. Yeah. Um, and then my favorite character, I've already said that my overall, it's Ronan, but I think for this book specifically, I think I'll go with Blue. It's a good one. It's a good Blue yeah. book. There's mm-hmm. a lot. I appreciate her a lot more in rereads. So. Yeah. She, she stands up for herself a lot with the boys too. Like she doesn't let them. And that that would be hard to be just surrounded by these kind of very... Like she she thinks sometimes about how like, oh yeah, they're going on talking about outdoor urinary habits, like to be the only girl amongst all these boys. Yeah. She holds her own. She is a little yeah. pistol. Yeah. So we love her. So she's my favorite character arc for kind of some of the same reasons you said. What I also think I like about her and where she goes in this book is that I think we've talked a lot about the trauma that our three alive boys have been through. Obviously, our little ghost boy has been through really bad trauma. But I mean, <laughs> she is in a lot of ways because she has not had to have the same life experiences. She's had a very happy childhood. She's not always the most immature. Mm-hmm. She thinks of them in this very binary way. Raven boy is bad. Mm-mm. Not going to like them. Don't like them at all. In her journey through the book and accepting them and really becoming friends with each of them and appreciating who each of them are is really rewarding to see. And just her her embracing this magic and the, the symmetry of, of Gansey being into as well. It's just, it's very nice. I like where she ends up with all of them. It's yeah. Good. I think that's a really special thing about these books is that each of the characters has their own relationship with each of the other ones. Like it's not just because, just because in the end they end up pairing off in a way they still like blue has a relationship with Ronan she has a relationship with Adam. She has a relationship, right. like a, just a specific relationship to each person. Right. And I think that's, yeah, that's really that's nice. Good. And my favorite character, I'm giving it to Noah because I do have a lot of soft feelings for Noah in this book with his reveal and everything here is, is so well done. And it's so, like we said, rewarding to reread. And I just, oh God, like the imagery of him, like petting blue spiky hair all the time. And, like one point he says to her, it's like not a spike each day. She's like, I didn't sleep well. So I didn't have time to like give She's it like, the I need sleep for quality spikes. Yeah. I just, oh, I love him so much. Uh, They're very cute together. Yeah. So I'm, I'm giving it to Noah. And let's talk about swoon worthy moments. There are not a lot here. Because we are pinch trash, I, I see that we have both extrapolated kind of weird moments. Just whatever we could. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't you go ahead first? All right. 
Uh, I think <laughs> the best one clearly is Ronan coming back yeah. and kicking the shit out of Robert Parrish because yeah. Adam sees like when he's on the ground, Ronan has dropped him off and his dad has started to beat him. He's on the ground. He notices that Adam's got his brake lights on and he's, he thinks Ronan to himself, does, just yeah. go, go, just Ronan, go Ronan. Go, yeah. And Ronan comes back and it's such a triumphant and satisfying moment because Robert Parrish is like, nose to nose with Adam and he's like yelling at him and then Adam notices that he looks off and he says what do you want and Ronan says to do this and then punches him yeah. and it's just like oh yes that is not yeah. maybe traditionally romantic yeah, but it's like, definitely sn- sn- uh, sorry swoon worthy yeah it is and I mean the thing about Ronan is he would do that for Gansy and he would do that for mm-hmm. Blue and he would do mm-hmm. it for no but like you mm-hmm. know we know from Call Down the Hawk that the minute Ronan Lynch laid eyes on Adam Parrish. He closed his eyes and prayed to God. He literally prayed, please. So you have to then look at every single moment, every interaction between them with love, which is, I think, crazy because there's that moment where I think they, oh, yeah. So they had just come out of the dream tree and and Adam is like freaking out. He's like, I want you to know, Blue, I would never do that. I would never do that to him. And they noticed that. Ronan is looking at them with a raw expression on his face. And you think that it's because of, you know, just the general anxiety over what's going on around them. But I think it's because he's seeing Adam in such yeah. a, an intimate moment with somebody else and yeah. he's hurting. Like, yeah. ah, I I'm going to jump into then and say that on to layer on top of that, the fact, as I talked about before, that Adam makes the conscious decision to turn his dad in and press charges because he knows he has to protect Ronan and he's definitely going to get kicked out of Aglanby if he's arrested for being the shit out of Adam's dad. So then I love, this is just, they're so fucked up, but like, I love him so much. At one point later, they they ask where Ronan was and Noah's like, he's cramming for an exam. Because at that point, he needs to turn his studies around. And the only thing that ultimately in this whole book that gets him to turn things around and try to, like, be a student again is what Adam does. To what keep Adam did to keep him, him in agony. Oh, I can't. I can't. Whew, um, I think we, we both wrote this down, though. <laughs> oh, God, I know. We, like, oh, God, I love him so much. Girl, we're freaking out already this hard and over this them. Thing, it's going to be outrageous. Happens. They're both, they're <laughs> both uh, he's seeing someone else. He's seeing blue, which is what is really interesting. So like the first time I read this book, you have this quote, right? You know that blue and Gansy are in game. Like, you know mm-hmm. it. And I had known before I read this because I had just seen an, a, a glimpse of something online. Like I knew that Ronan and Adam were going to be a thing too. So like, I was aware of all this despite that though, like everything Adam and Bloom in this book is very sweet in a lot of ways. It's so sweet. So the fact that Adam, Adam who has to scrimp and save every single penny, who works three jobs to stay in school, the fact that he sends blue flowers, admittedly the smallest bouquet, and Calla says, I bet the delivery costs more than the flowers. The fact that he does that and what that means coming from Adam and that she she knows she is cognizant enough of who Adam is without him telling her that this is probably a really big deal for him is really very sweet yeah and I like it a lot and just wait till I like cry a ton about <laughs> everything that happens with them in the dream thieves because I have like a lot of feelings about it even though like I love mm-hmm. Adam and Ronan obviously yeah. like it's just it's it's messy and that's that's love man so I like that moment 
And we each have a platonic swoon moment written here. Do you want to go mm-hmm. first? Um, I pretty much it. already did mine. It's it's when Ronan wrote Remembered yeah, on the car when Noah was writing Murdered. Oh, so good. Um, mine is Ronan asking Blue if she wants to hold Chainsaw. That's it. That's all he does. But like, she knows it's a big deal. And it's... I love their friendship so much. There's a lot of parallels drawn between them here in this book. And at one point, someone comments about how, like, she stood as tall as Ronan, even though Mm -hmm. she's, like, five foot tall. Like, they just have a group. They're so similar in a lot of ways. So similar. And that's why they, they, they butt heads sometimes in the beginning right before their friendship really develops is that they are, they are both very sharp, prickly Right. Creatures. And despite the fact that Ronan, there's definitely moments of you can tell it's jealousy over the fact that Adam is is seeing blue. Uh he, he when Adam Adam Parrish flirting about bruises inflicted on his face by his own father is like, do they make me look cool? And Ron's like, I think it makes me look like a loser. It's like, okay, <laughs> chill, you're jealous. <laughs> but anyway, I'm my point is, despite being such an ass and like being in love with Adam and being jealous about it, he still like immediately is like, I like blue. So yeah, it's great. I love it. We love him. And I think he likes that she is spiky with him. You know, yeah. like she doesn't, she'll, she'll fight back. He yeah. expects to kind of like bully her a little bit. And right. no, that's that's not going down with Blue Sergeant. <laughs> yeah, I love him all so much. All right. Well, <laughs> we why didn't we divide this into two? We are sorry, listeners. We are dividing up every other book into two in this series. But I don't know we, why we thought that we I don't not know. have enough to talk Do about we in not this. Know movie? ourselves? I don't know. I'm sorry, listeners. So this is gonna be a long episode, but going forward, our next uh Raven cycle books each will be two episodes long so on that note i think we wanted to let you all know that our next week's episode will be on book two the dream thieves but we're only going through chapter 30 so if you're rereading that's where you'll stop and then we will cover the second half the week after but other than that i think it's a good place to wrap up tasia where can people find you on the internet you can find me on twitter or instagram at ragey cakes I'm on Instagram at Rin underscore reads. The podcast is on Instagram and Twitter at Act Ya Age. You can also send us an email at actyaagepod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And in the meantime, if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you podcast, we would very much appreciate that. It would uh, help us so much. We really would. appreciate it. We would like it. Thank you. <laughs> Other than that, friends, see you next week when Tej and I will probably absolutely be losing our mind about our favorite book in this, this is our favorite series. book so apologize in advance oh, wait, i make no apologies we are who we are <laughs> we love we love this series we warned you all if you're here we assume you love this series too so just get ready we're just a fair warning we're not gonna yeah. have much chill but it's fine it'll be fun all right see you next week <laughs> Bye. bye, bye.